0: Amen. Well, um, today, we are going to continue in our series called God's Gym. Some of you may be wondering, if you had not never met before, why is that preacher wearing a whistle? Well, um, uh, as we said last week, um, uh, the sermon we started last week was Wrestling with God, and I wasn't going to wear a wrestling outfit, one of those high school wrestling outfits. So uh, today, you've got Coach Paul again uh, with you, all right, as we are continuing in the message, uh, Wrestling with God, all right? So uh, our series... Uh, theme scripture is 1 Timothy 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Would you all read this with me? It says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so the aim of this series is to encourage us to get into spiritual shape or get back into spiritual shape as the case may be. And so I'm really excited about what God's going to do in the series. I believe he's going to encourage us. He's going to strengthen us. He wants to make us champions for him. That's God's best version of you. God wants his best version for your life. And he wants you to make you an overcomer and a champion for him. Now, today's message is wrestling with God part two. We're continuing in the message we started last week. And, uh, the, the scripture for this message is Hosea chapter 12, verse 3. It's kind of an obscure verse, but um, he's speaking about Jacob. And he says this, In the womb, he grasped his brother heel. As a man, he struggled or wrestled with God. And so we're looking at what it means to wrestle with God and wrestle with life. And, and to do that, we've been observing and unpacking the life of Jacob the Jewish patriarch. Jacob was a man with the promises of God. That's what we saw last week. Jacob was a man with the promises of God. And Jacob was a man who had some difficulty trusting in the promises of God. Uh, It says that Jacob was a deceiver, a schemer, a conniver. And he schemed and connived so much that he busted up his family relationships and had to go on the run. He had to flee from his brother Esau. And then, though, at the lowest time, in his life. We saw God renew his promises to him. How, come, how, do, how do you know that sometimes at the lowest time in your life, that's the best time for God to speak to you, to hear from God? But even with God's reassurances to him, Jacob still seems to have struggled with God. We see over the next uh, uh, 14 years or so, God using his uncle Laban as a tool in his hands to begin to confront Jacob. To begin to try to reach Jacob about this uh, lack of trust and faith he had in God's promises. And so that's where we left off last week. So that's what we're going to pick up this morning. And as we re-engage the story this morning, the first thing that we'll notice is that God begins to fulfill his promises to Jacob. God had promised Jacob that he would have many descendants. And where we pick it up here in chapter 29 at the end, last few verses of 29 and into verse chapter 30, we see an account of Jacob having all these children. He has 11 boys and one girl. How many of you ladies would like that situation growing up, right? And 10 of them were older. It's like 10 older brothers. We come to verse 25, and it says this. Jacob says to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for, for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work that I've done for you. So here Jacob is beginning to want to go back to his family. But but Laban knows that he's prospered because of Jacob. And so he talks Jacob into staying a little while while he says, Name your wages and I'll pay them. Now, how many of you would like your boss to come to you at work on, tomorrow and say, just name, just whatever you do, don't leave. Name your wages and I'll pay them. Alright, a few of you would like that, right? That would that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, That's what Laban said to Jacob. And so Jacob decides to stay for a while. However, what we see over the next uh, chapter and into the rest of the several verses of chapter 31 is not this friendly, mutual, beneficial uh, uh, partnership between Jacob and Laban. Instead, we begin to see an increasingly adversarial relationship. You know, I'm not going to read all of these verses to you, But basically, Jacob devises this plan in which all of the stronger animals would go to him and all of the weaker animals would go to Laban. And in verse 43, it says, In this way, the man, Jacob, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and dogs." Now, Jacob didn't need to do any of this to prosper. God had promised him that he would prosper. He had inherited the covenant with Abraham Heaven's dew, and earth riches would be his. Nations and peoples would bow down to him. God had promised him the entire land of Canaan. He didn't need to do anything underhanded or deceptive to gain God's blessing. And yet we still see him acting here as though everything in life depends on him. He's acting as though he is the one who has to make God's promises come to pass. And then Laban, for his part, while he's equally deceptive as well, says that he changed Jacob's wages ten times if all the flocks were bearing streaked young he said well the speckled ones will be your wages and if all the spots were bearing speckled young he said well all the streaked ones will be your wages so Laban's acting deceitfully as well and we come to chapter 31 beginning in verse 1 and it says this Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father and Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude, attitude towards him was not what it had been. I mean, you think? I mean, this was all very dysfunctional due to uh, greed and mistrust of each other, stemming from a fundamental lack of trust in God. And how many of you know that you know, if, if, if you don't really trust God for your future, it can lead to you treating other people poorly? And so Jacob here receives the promises directly from God. God says to him, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. All right, so God's saying, all right, it's time to go home now. And like I promised you before, I will be with you. In other words, he's saying, don't worry what you're going to face back there. Whatever is going to happen, I'm going to be with you. How many of you love those kinds of promises God's word, right? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Whatever happens, I will be with you. So by now, Jacob is a man who is full of the promises of God. Yet Jacob is also a man who is still struggling to trust God in his life and in his circumstances. Let's follow it. Now, verses 4 to 16 in this chapter, it says that Jacob calls his family together, and he basically, he devises this scheme in which he's going to just leave with his family without telling Laban and his family anything about it. It says it this way when we come to verse 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramaean, by not telling him he was running away. He fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob deceived Laban by not telling him he was running away. He's still Jacob. He's still a deceiver. He's still a conniver. Now, the right thing to do, the right way to go about this, would have been to tell Laban his plan. Tell him what he was planning so that they could prepare and give them a proper goodbye. You know, I don't know what happened. Maybe he's worried that Laban would take his family back by force and take all the possessions back by force. or, Or maybe he just doesn't want to deal with Laban for another five minutes. Or maybe it's a combination of all those things. But what we are sure of is this. God had said, go back to your land, and what? I will be with you. It didn't matter what Laban was going to do, or might do, or might not do. God had promised that he was going back and that he would be with him. But instead of acting in faith, Jacob is trusting his instincts. He's trusting himself. Say, how often do we run around worrying about what someone else is going to do? Right, someone else is going to do something and mess up God's plans in our life. Right? What if this person does that? What if this person doesn't like this or does the other thing? You know, there is nothing that anyone else can do to mess up God's plan in your life when you are following Him. When you want Him. Now, there are things that people can do that can hurt you. There are sometimes that that people can do stuff that you weren't planning on and that may be hurt. But when you are following God and trusting God, there is nothing that can happen that Satan can do, the world can do, to mess up God's blessing in your life. What does it say? That neither height nor depth, neither uh, 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 principalities or anything in all creation will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so Jacob here, he's struggling, he runs off secretly the Bible says deceptively. Jacob deceived Lakin by not telling him he was running away. And look at, look at the manner of his departure. Look at how it describes it. It says Jacob drove his livestock ahead of him. Verse 20, he was running away. Verse 21, he fled with all he had. He was fleeing. He crossed the Euphrates and headed for the hill country of Gilead. In other words, he crossed the river and headed for the hills. I mean, this is not a leisurely trip. There's some urgency here. Jacob is getting out of Dodge. He's trying to get away as quickly as he can. Now think about that for a minute. Jacob is on the run again. Now, some of you may say, you know, Pastor Paul, hold on. You can't make that point again. You already made that point last week in this message, right? You can't make the same point twice. But we have to because this is the second time that Jacob is on the run. First uh, time he crossed the Euphrates River, he was a man on the run because of his conniving and scheming and deception. He had ruined all this stuff in his family, and he was fleeing from his brother Jacob. Now this time, because of his conniving and scheming and deception, now he's fleeing back the other way. Say, there's a pattern here, isn't there? I mean, every time Jacob crosses this river, he's running away from somebody. And it's here that God really begins to deal strongly with Jacob. It's here that God begins to kind of hem Jacob in a little bit and kind of corner him a little bit because God wants to get his attention. God wants to get him to a place where he completely trusts in the promises of God. Say, God wants to get us to a place where we completely trust the promises of God. Where we abandon ourselves in total faith to him. That whatever going to come in our lives, we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and letting him deal with all the other stuff, all the, the what, what might happen and what could happen in our lives. And so God's going to begin working strongly with Jacob and, uh, he's going to start removing things that he trusts in. You know, sometimes God has to do that in our lives, right? He begins to, to remove things that, that we've been trusting in so that we can't trust in them any longer and, uh. So as we continue the story, chapter 31, 22 to 43, it says that Laban catches up to Jacob. It says it this way, On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Self-reliance will always catch up to you in the end. So he caught up to him, and now here Laban is hot. I mean, he is upset. Basically, the idea here is that he has gathered a posse, he's chased Jacob down, And he's going to, by whatever force necessary, take back his possessions, take back his family, and then return. But God had other plans. Verse 24, it says, Then God came to Laban in a dream at night and said, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. All right, God's giving him a warning. Saying, essentially, you know, you're not going to follow um, these plans tomorrow. In verse 26, The next day Laban says to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me. And you carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Now, can I tell you something? That's rich, isn't it? I mean, these two have been deceiving each other for 20 years now. I mean, that's their modus operandi. That's how they act with each other. And he says, why did you deceive me? Of course he deceived him. That's what they do. And then he goes on and says, Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? Why didn't you even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye? Well, I'll tell you what, that's rich too, isn't it? I mean, he was about to pounce on him the night before and take everything by force before God rebuked him. And now he's acting like, you know, I would have thrown you a party. There would have been hugs and kisses all around. And you know what? Nobody's buying that. He shouldn't be selling it. Everybody knows that it would have been ugly. And Laban kind of betrays himself in the next words. He says, you've done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And has it occurred to anyone yet that Laban is saying an awful lot of stuff for a man who's testifying that God just told him to say nothing? (laughs) Can I give you a word of advice? When God says, say nothing... Don't say anything. I mean, how many times have we gotten in trouble because of what we said? And you're probably, okay, there's an honest soul right over here. All right. And you know when you're saying it, you probably shouldn't be saying it. And as the words are coming out of your mouth, you're wishing you could almost take them back at the same time, right? When God says say nothing, you should say nothing. What does it say in the Bible? Be slow to speak right quick to listen slow to speak well here laban you know he just can't stop he's it just keeps coming out and uh jacob of course then gets all upset and he tears into laban he recites all of the injustices he thinks that laban has committed against him and he kind of paints himself as kind of innocent in all this which as we've seen is not really accurate either and laban he still seems to be having difficulty just letting go verse 43 he says the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Well, that wasn't really true either. He had tried to cheat Jacob, but God blessed him anyway. And um, so here, Jacob and Laban are parting ways. Let's pick it up in verse forty-four. He says, "I want because I want you to see what happens next uh, as Jacob and Laban get ready to part ways." Laban says, "Come now, let's make a covenant you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us." So Jacob took a stone. And set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha. And Jacob called it Galiid. And so both of those mean witness heap. One's in Aramaic and one is in Hebrew. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between us, between me and you. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. And so after they made this covenant, they ate, they spent the night there, the next morning... Uh, Laban got up, he kissed his children and his grandchildren goodbye, and he left. But please understand, this is not a friendly parting. This is more of a kind of tragic end to a relationship. Laban's basically saying, all right, that's how it's going to be. Fine. We'll set up this boundary here, and you go that way, and I'll go this way, and I won't come over here to harm you, and you won't come here to harm me. And if you do, your blood be on your own head. And Jacob's saying, well, fine, that's fine with me. You go that way, I'll go this way. I'm going to wash my hands of you, and good riddance. And while Jacob is burning bridges behind him, what God is doing is God is beginning to cut off the things that Jacob can trust in, in the natural. God is beginning to hem him in. He's beginning to move Jacob to a place where his only option is to trust God. Now Jacob only has one way to go, and it's forward. There's no going back. There's no escape hatch. And so Laban returns to his land, and Jacob now prepares to continue to his family. And the first thing that is on his mind is his brother Esau. You remember when he left, the state of mind that Esau was in, right? Esau wanted to kill Jacob. That's the last time he saw Esau. Verses 3 to 5, it says this. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant, Jacob, says, I have been staying with Laban and I've remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Now, now wait a minute here. What is going on here with this? Why is he calling Esau my lord? God said that Esau would not be lord over him. And why is he referring to himself as your servant? Because God said the older would serve the younger. It sounds like, almost like he's verbally laying down the promises of God. Like in trying to pacify Esau here, he seems to be almost letting go of the promises of God. Can I tell you something? You can't pacify the world by laying down the promises of God. Right? You can't pacify the devil by laying down the promises of God. It may seem in your situation, like, if I just let go of these promises of God, if I just let go of this part of God's word or that part of God's word, then maybe my situation will get easier. Then maybe my situation will be more manageable. I'll be able to handle it, and everybody will just kind of leave me alone. But you can't pacify the the world, or the devil, by laying down the promises of God. And not only that, why mention all of these sheep and goats and cattle and donkeys and servants he has? You know what? I think that this is Jacob's way of saying, you know, hey, look, I know there's some history between us. You know, and I know you probably remember I stole the blessing and I I manipulated the birthright away from you and all of that so I could get all of this stuff from you, but... I'm just letting you know, I have, I have all everything I need now, all of this stuff, right? I'm, I, and so I really don't need anything from you. How many of you have that one relative that whenever they show up, you know they want something? <laughs> all right, so up until his life, this time in his life, Jacob was that guy. And so he's trying to say to, to Esau, look, I'm not coming because I need something from you. I have everything that I need. Let's let bygones be bygones. But what's really happening here is Jacob is just being Jacob. He's still a schemer. He's still a conniver. He's still a deceiver. He's still trusting his instincts. He's still having trouble trusting God and his promises. And he's acting like everything rises and falls on his ability. Verse 6, it says this. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now... He is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And now look at the beginning of verse 7. It says this, in great fear and distress. Stop there for a minute. In great fear and distress. Everything Jacob does for the next 12 verses or so, everything Jacob does for the rest of the day is motivated by great fear and And distress. How many of you know that fear is the opposite of faith? I mean, it's hard for fear and faith to live in the same space, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like oil and vinegar, right? I mean, you can mix them up if you really shake them up for a little bit, but they naturally want to just separate again, right? And fear and faith are that way. It's hard to walk in fear and be motivated by fear and walk in faith and trust at the same time. And, and that's what Jacob is trying to do. And so uh, let's look at it. Verse 7 and 8, it says, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Say, what? I mean, well, that's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, place yourself there for a minute. Pretend you're one of the children for a minute. I mean, can you imagine what they're thinking? You know, I remember when my girls were little, sometimes we'd be out somewhere doing something, and something that maybe seemed a little scary to them happened, and they would reach up a hand and and put it in my hand and kind of look up in my face. And, you know, as long as dad looked okay, dad didn't look scared or worried or anything like that, I guess things were going to be okay. You know, well, when these kids looked at Jacob, Jacob was not okay. I mean, he's afraid. And can you imagine the conversations? You know, Dad, why are we getting in two groups? Uh, Why do I have to go to this group? Asher's over there. I want to go play with Asher. I want to go play with Dad. Can't I go in the same group? And Dad's going like, well, uh, why do we have to get in another group? And Dad's going, no, you can't get in the same group because you see, look, your uncle Esau is coming. And uh, you don't know him, but he's kind of a hothead. Your Uncle Esau's coming, and it's a long story, but, you know, the last time I saw him, he wanted to kill me. And now, now he's coming with 400 people, you understand, and, uh, and I, I'm afraid he's going to kill us all, so you've got to get in two groups. And uh, you can almost hear one of the children shouting out, you know, What? We're all going to die? And Jacob's like, Oh, no, 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 not all of us. Just like half of us, probably. <laughs> you know, uh, the other half will at least have a chance to escape. <laughs> I mean... That's not very encouraging, is it, right? That's not the message you want to hear from dad. And not only that, one wonders, I mean, where does he think that the other half is going to go? I mean, they can't really cross back over the Euphrates River, right? The boundary line, remember? And uh, uh, what what are they going to do if they get away that day? Just like run all over the land of Canaan and Palestine trying to stay one step ahead of esau for the rest of their lives i mean it's not a very well thought out plan is it fear will do that to you fear will make you make some kind of silly decisions and some silly plans and then we come to verses 9 to 12 jacob offers this this nervous prayer it's a good prayer it's not a bad prayer but it's a nervous prayer it's not really a faith-filled prayer So let's unpack it a little bit. It says that then Jacob prayed, Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. Now here, Jacob is reminding God of who he is and what he has said. Have you ever prayed like this? Yeah, Yeah, probably all of us have, right? If we're honest, uh, we get in some situation, and maybe it's making us a little nervous, and we're not sure what's happening, and get a little bit fearful, and we, we start to pray, and we begin to remind God who he is. We're quoting all the names of God, and then we start quoting all of the scriptures that we think God should know applies to this situation right here, right? And, and that's okay. That's okay, you know, to pray that way sometimes, but can I tell you, when you get in some situation, God has not forgotten who he is. And God hasn't forget, forgotten what he said, and he hasn't forgotten where you are and what you are facing. So it's okay to kind of pray this way um, when you're in a tight spot, but he hasn't, it's more for our benefit than for his. And going on, as Jacob said, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Now, Wait a minute again. Two camps? I mean, what is that? I mean, is that really how God saw them? I mean, God never said, your descendants will become two camps. God said that your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the north and the south and the east and the west. You know, when you walk in fear, you will inevitably reduce God's promises down to something that you can manage right you say that the stuff with god that's just too big i can't manage that let me reduce that all down to something that i can handle and that i can manage myself can i tell you if the christian life is just something that you can just handle and manage all by yourself then then what is it right i mean that's kind of a self-centered christianity isn't it it's a self-focused self-reliant christianity But a genuine Christian walk looks at the challenges of life, faces what we can't handle, and says, you know, God, there are some promises here that are bigger than me. There's some challenges here that are bigger than me. But I'm going to walk in the promises of God. I'm going to trust in the promises of God. No matter what comes my way, God, there are big things. But you're a bigger God, and you have big promises for me. Amen. Someone say amen. And he goes on. He says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So he's quoting God again. And uh, I mean, it's not a bad prayer, but it's not really a faith-filled prayer. It's kind of a nervous prayer. He admits he's afraid. I mean, there's a little honesty there, right? It's not a bad prayer, but it's also not a very long prayer. It took him about 30 or 35 seconds to pray this prayer. So I think it's a lot shorter than it needed to be. You know, have you ever had that time in your life when when you're worried about something, there's some situation that you have to face, and maybe even a little bit fearful, and you begin to pray, and when you start praying, you sound a lot like Jacob started here. But as you press on a little bit, you know, through all of that, the Holy Spirit starts to do something in your heart starts to do something in your life. And by the working of the Holy Spirit, something starts to change. And all of a sudden, what was fearful before, now begins to turn into faith, right? And and the Holy Spirit starts to encourage you and make you stronger. Well, I believe that's what should have happened here. But that's not what happened. Jacob kind of just ended there. Sometimes we rush out on the presence of God just too quickly, right? Sometimes after you've laid the situation out before God, you need to spend a little bit more time Just in his presence, letting the Holy Spirit do his work in your heart and in your life. Jacob runs out here, and and he goes right back to, to trusting himself and doing what he can do. Look at verse 13. He says, from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants each herd by itself, and said to the servants, Go ahead of me, and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau comes to you and asks, Who do these belong to? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you ought to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, You ought to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. And Jacob is trying to pacify Esau with these gifts. You know how I know he's trying to pacify him? Well, because in the next verse it says, For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I'll pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of himself. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Now, let's see as we go on to these next verses how God is going to make Jacob into a champion. He's going to make him into an overcomer. And that's what God wants for each one of us. He's wanting to make you into a spiritual champion, into a spiritual overcomer. It says in verse 22 and 23, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Now stop there for a second. This is where the story usually goes wrong. I've heard this passage preached a number of times or taught a number of times. And it's usually right here that the story goes wrong. The teacher the preacher will usually then go on and say something like, Jacob decided that he needed to get along with God. So then Jacob got alone with God, started wrestling with God, until finally he was able to extract this blessing from God. But as you look carefully at it, that is not what these verses say happened. It sounds spiritual, but it's not what these verses say happened. It goes, it doesn't say anything like Jacob decided to get alone with God. As a matter of fact, from what we know of Jacob's life and who he was, it, It's much more probable that Jacob had gone across to that side of the river or the the stream to just kind of watch what's happening. Remember the plan was to divide them into two groups and whichever group gets attacked, the other one would run. And Jacob knows that if he's found with one of these groups, it would doom that group. So here's Jacob on this side uh, getting ready to watch what happens and he's going to run with the group that's not attacked. It's the last option he has left. It's the last trick, obviously, the last play that he has. Let's read this carefully. See what actually happened here. Verse 24, it says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man rested with him till daybreak. This is God coming to him. Some people think that this might be... Um, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Some people think that this might be what's known in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, or it may simply be an angel that God sent for this purpose. We're not exactly sure, but it doesn't really matter. What matters most is the wording here. The angel wrestled with him. This is an image of God coming and wrestling with Jacob. God has been wrestling with Jacob for these 20 or 30 years, trying to get him to just trust to walk in faith and trust and now god shows up personally to to wrestle with him and even though god has hemmed him in and and pinned him into this desperate situation jacob i mean he's still been scheming he's still been manipulating he's still thinking i hope if i just pacify esau you know i can do this but if not i can run and escape but god shows up and he starts to wrestle with him And it says in verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, that is quite a statement, isn't it? This is God saying, you know, I'm wrestling with this guy and he won't give in. He won't surrender. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Okay, so what's going on here? How are we going to unpack this? I mean, first, why can't this angel overpower him? And second, why does he just touch Jacob's hip? Why not rinse his two shoulders out of place so that Jacob just has to stop fighting and has to give up? And I think that when the angel touched Jacob's hip, God was taking away the last earthly thing that Jacob could trust in, his ability to run. His hip was now wrenched out of place. The idea of running when Esau got there was now off the table. I mean, in an earthly sense, this left him helpless. Jacob now had no other option. He was going to face Esau, one way or the other. And he was either going to do it all by himself, or he was going to do it by trusting God and his promises. Those are the only two options that he had left. In verse 26, it says this. I love this verse. Then the men said, let me go for his daybreak. All right, so God has wrestled with him all night, beat him up, Wrenched his hip out of place so he can't run, and then, then he makes like he's leaving. You ever felt like that? Like, God, where are you? And God, says, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? But sometimes emotionally we can feel that way, right? He says, Let me go for it's daybreak. And the idea is this you know, it's daybreak, Esau is just about here. I've wrestled with you all night. This is going nowhere. It's time for you to go out and face the music. It's time to deal with the situation. And the verse goes on to say, and this might be the best verse in Jacob's life. Jacob replied, I will not let go until you bless me. Now that's different. Because all night long, it's been Jacob resisting right? But now after the, after the hip's been touched, now that there's no other option, now Jacob's not resisting. He's grabbed on. He's grabbed on to God, and he's holding on for dear life. I will not let go unless you bless me. That's different. I mean, before it was all, I can handle this. I've got this. I'll find a way. I can manage this. I mean, even just a few moments before, he was still fighting God. But now instead of fighting and resisting, he's grabbed on and he's holding on for dear life. And it's like he's finally saying, you know what, God, what I have is not enough. My wits, my talents, my abilities, my scheming, my uh, everything that I've had, it's not enough to face this situation. I can't do life anymore without you. God, I need something from you. And can I tell you, I feel, I just feel an anointing from the Holy Spirit right now. That maybe someone here, you know, you've been, you've been trusting, you know, your own way. You've got something of God, something of the scriptures that you've been saying, you know what, that's just not for me. It's maybe something trusting God with, and you could name it. I don't know what it is, but just as in my preparation and even now, just feel an anointing from the Spirit that there's something. God wants to say, trust me with that thing because I will be with you. The life of walking in faith is way better than the life of walking in your own ability and in your own understanding. And that's where Jacob was. He's finally saying, I can't do life on my own anymore. And that's all the response that God was looking for. That's the expression of faith and trust that God was looking for all along. Verse 27, it says, the man asked him, what is your name? Now stop there for a second. The angel asks him, what is your name? I mean, do you suppose for a second that that angel didn't know who this was? I mean, you think it was like, you know, this angel came happened just happened to be in the area that night, stopped and saw him and said, well, here's some poor sorry sap. <laughs> I don't have anything better to do. I think I'll jump him and beat him up all night. I mean, some people view God that way. Like God's just waiting to beat them up, right? That that God just wants to pounce on them. But that's not what's happening here. When he said, what is your name? He wasn't asking for information. He was asking for a confession. He's saying, you want me to bless you? Well, tell me who you really are. Stop acting like you're all that. Just tell me who you really are. And he says, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a schemer. I'm a conniver. I trusted myself in my own way. This is a confession. This is Jacob finally just being honest with God. Can I tell you, that is the best place to be in. You know, God isn't impressed with all sorts of flowery prayers that, you know, sound all old English and all of that, you know. God's impressed with humility. You know, when we're just honest with him. Like the man who came to Jesus and Jesus said, do you believe? He says, well, I do believe, but help my unbelief. No bragging, no anything like that. Just, God, here I am. I need you. He answers, Jacob. Verse 28, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men And have overcome. Not in the sense that he was stronger than God and and won the fight or anything like that. Or beat up the angel. But in the sense that the Bible says this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. You've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. He's no longer Jacob, a deceiver. He is Israel, an overcomer. A champion with God. A champion of faith. And as we see him the next morning, Jacob walks the walk of a champion. Let's look at it. This is chapter 33, verses 1 to 3. It says, that morning, as he limped across the brook, it says, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now wait a minute. What happened to the two camps? What happened to the two groups in the running? Jacob is a changed man. The fear is gone from his face. He's no longer acting in fear. He's he's walking in faith. He's no longer trusting himself. He's trusting God and his promises. And look what this faith accomplishes. It unites his family into one group. Now, instead of hiding and cowering on the other side of the brook uh, to run away, now he's where he should be. He's in front of his family, leading his family. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen to him first. And it says Jacob went ahead and he bowed down to the ground. Well, that would leave him in a prone position. I mean, if Esau was going to do something, Jacob was making it easy for him. This is the walk of an overcomer. This is the walk of a champion of faith. And so as we get ready to conclude this morning, I have just a couple observations about Jacob's story to kind of maybe tie it all together. The first is this. Often in life, Our greatest struggles are with God. Jacob wasn't fighting the devil here. Jacob, uh, he wasn't really fighting the world here. Jacob's struggle was with God. God was trying to get him to surrender. He was having difficulty surrendering. And so if we're going to be an overcomer and a champion, the pathway to that is surrendering our lives to God. Surrendering to God and having faith in him. And then secondly, trusting in ourselves tends to produce fear. Because, you know, the problem is when we trust in ourselves, we all have this innate awareness of our limitations and of our abilities. And we realize that, you know, as talented as we think we may be, there are things out there that are bigger than our talent and our ability. And we have this innate realization of that. And so trusting in ourselves tends to produce fear in our lives, fear of the future. How much fear would be eliminated in our lives if we learned to walk in faith and in trust, trusting the promises of God? And next, sometimes also, trusting God leaves you in what feels like a prone position says Jacob bowed down seven times before Esau. In the natural, he was in a prone position. He was vulnerable. In the natural, there may be times when trusting God leaves you in a place where you feel kind of exposed and vulnerable. Well, something could happen if I just trust God with this. But you find out in the end that God had your back the whole time. You know, if you're looking at something fearful or frightening right now, I'd encourage you, just look back over your life for a minute and see if you don't see a trail of God's faithfulness in your life, saying to you, testifying to you that whatever is coming in the future, God is going to walk with you. God is going to be faithful and have your back through whatever comes your way. And the last thing is this. Spiritual champions tend to walk with a limb. Those who have had an encounter with God tend to walk with a limb. You know, being a spiritual champion, you know, it's not like being a champion in the world, all of that, you know, types of things that the world just lifts up as strong and impressive and uh, as a champion. Here, Jacob, that morning, didn't look like some type of valiant warrior. Here he is, he's crossing the brook. He's limping as he's coming. And he's all beat up and battered and bruised and bloody and his hair's all messed up. His, his, his clothes is, uh, is torn. But there's something different about him. The fear is God. And in its place is this, this intangible but the very real spiritual power that is driven by humility and trust. Say, that's what God wants for you that intangible but very real spiritual power to face every situation. And it says that Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. And at first you might think that that's a bad thing. But actually, in the end, it was God's mark on him. That limp reminded him every step he ever took of the work of God in his life. Sometimes when you've had an encounter of God, it marks you in some way. And it reminds you every time you think of it of the gracious, awesome work of God in your life. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?